In this episode of the Permaculture Podcast, Rob Avis of Verge Permaculture joins me to talk about rainwater harvesting. This conversation is based on his book from New Society Publishers, Essential Rainwater Harvesting. Rob wrote this book along with his wife and Verge Permaculture partner, Michelle. Though they began their professional careers as engineers designing solutions in the oil fields, they now live on a productive permaculture Canadian homestead and use that experience to create and share all the formulas, calculations, and components needed to create a productive system for capturing clean, healthy water. Enjoy this conversation with Rob, and I'll join you again afterward. Then, Rob, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to practice permaculture and rainwater harvesting, and we can take the conversation from there. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on the show, Scott. So my name is Rob Avis, and I'm a mechanical engineer up here in Calgary, Alberta. I actually grew up in a cake factory, so the reason that's important is I, I grew up in in a, an industrial food system, literally contributing to industrial food for most of my life. Then I got my engineering degree and moved to Calgary, where my wife and I were both petroleum engineers, building pipelines and oil and gas facilities. And uh, at one point in our career, I received this this email in my inbox, which changed my life forever, which was Jeff Lawton screening the desert video. And I was ironically getting ready to take down, you know, 100 acres of trees to bring a new gas pipeline into a facility that I was working on. And here was this guy who was putting all of his life energy towards making the world a better place. And I was, at best, maintaining status quo. So I called my wife. We quit our jobs. We traveled the world for about three years. We went to Australia, Europe, Mexico, most of the U.S., most of Canada, parts of Africa. And basically wanted to seek out a different story. We wanted to determine whether or not the story that we were living in Calgary, which was that the world has no other option than to burn fossil fuels and consume industrial food, was actually the only story that was being told out there. And the more we traveled, the more we realized that there were other stories, which is how we came upon permaculture. And so once we took our first PDC with the Bullock Brothers on Orcas Island, we were completely terminal after that. We couldn't go back to the way we were. And so being that we were engineers, we understood energy, we understand fluid dynamics, our specialty has kind of moved towards water harvesting, both in the micro scale, kind of zone one, all the way out to the macro scale, all the way out to zone four. And so that's kind of the water piece. And then given that we're also pretty committed to the to the energy side of things, um, we do a lot with low energy buildings, specifically passive solar greenhouses and passive house. And our consulting practice kind of focuses on bringing all of that together within the scale of, of permanence. It always seems like everyone who comes to permaculture with a handful of exceptions have had these very varied stories of something in their lives that inspired them to do different and then drew them into this world. And I'm so glad to hear that you and Michelle have been able to use this very specific background as engineers and apply that to permaculture in a way that is very technically proficient as well as informational and also useful. In looking through your book, essential rainwater harvesting, you have a lot of information broken down into spreadsheets and the way that people can calculate everything that they need. And yet at the same time, it's incredibly accessible for anyone who is just starting out on this road. So I was wondering if you could also give us an idea of what are the essential considerations for someone who wants to use water in the landscape where they live? 
Yeah, so I think to answer that question, I need to go back a few steps and we'll maybe bring the elevation of the conversation up to, you know, 30,000 feet for a little bit, because I want to give a bit of a, a background or um, an overview of the rainwater harvesting landscape, at least in North America right now. So the book was actually really difficult to write when we started writing it because the codes in the United States varied by state and also by federal jurisdiction. As well as in Canada, there was a, a variety of different best practices or codes. And really, I mean, the, the municipalities didn't really know how to deal with a lot of this stuff. And so on the west coast of Canada, where if you don't harvest rainwater, you can't live on the islands there. And in the north of Alberta, where I live, there's no groundwater. There's no ability to put a well into the ground because there's just no water down there. And so people drink out of dugouts or ponds, which are typically at the bottom of their property and full of different types of manures and pathogens and nitrates and phosphates and all that stuff, all the nasty stuff you don't want to drink. And it varies right across our country. And really, it's kind of like, we're going to pretend like rainwater doesn't exist unless, of course, it's the only way to develop. And if, if there are other ways to develop, then we're going to encourage that first. And so when we were writing it, there was no real unified standard that we could write to. And there are some best practices that are out there based on organizations like ARCSA, which is the American Rainwater Association, and then a version of that here in Canada, which really hasn't taken off. And so as engineers, as professional engineers that stamp and take liability on things, it's really difficult for us to come in and, and say, well, you know, this is the one standard that you should follow or the one code that you should practice. And so we had to kind of come up with a document or a book that would be applicable to not just the United States and Canada, but to everywhere in the world. And so we are so lucky as humans living in this modern age where everything is dictated and delineated by codes and regulations and municipal guidelines and federal guidelines and state guidelines. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but all the, the regulations that we have to understand in order to be able to get to those essentials. And so it took us a long time to kind of figure out how to write this book in a way that would be essential, as you said, but also applicable across a very broad demographic. And so the, one of the reasons we're so lucky is that in Australia, there's close to 6 million people that live on rainwater day in and day out and have been for close to 100 years, some of which are living on this water without any filtration and others minimal filtration. And so we have one of the largest epidemiological case studies of utilization of rainwater for all domestic and industrial and commercial uses within Australia. And so the book itself started with that premise that rainwater actually starts as safe, which is not the necessarily the impression that you get when you read some of these other best practices that kind of float around in North America. Rainwater itself starts as safe. And our job as designers is to make sure that when that water comes out of the pipe on the other end, that it's high quality water, high quality drinking water. And I use the word high quality drinking water because the word potable has all sorts of baggage associated with it. And so really, the book itself kind of details out the best practices from roof right to faucet that an individual needs to practice in order to make sure that the goal of high quality drinking water, water coming out of those faucets, is going to provide a healthy form of hydration or whatever the end use of that water happens to be. And so I guess the, the really kind of short 
answer to that, the pattern, if you will, is that if you're not designing a system with that goal in mind, it doesn't matter how much end-of-line treatment you do. If you have not fostered good practices all the way through the rainwater harvesting system, through every single component, we can talk about that if you'd like, then it doesn't matter how many UV lamps or filters or carbon filters or particulate filters you put into that system, you're not going to end up with that goal. And that was one of the questions that I had about your work on rainwater harvesting is whether or not you were focusing on water that could be used for every human use from drinking to irrigation or whether it was just in the landscape. Because that's one of the pieces when I was looking at designing a home water capture system I mean, even just five or six years ago, most of the information was pointing towards how you could use it in the landscape, but not for human consumption, that you weren't going to be cooking with it, you weren't going to be drinking it, you might clean with it, but there were still a lot of questions without having chemicals, or as you say, the UV filters in place, to make that something that would meet normal like TAP standards in the United States. For anyone who would want to do this, there always seemed to be a lot of liability questions in place about, you know, if you're on your roof, what about having a metal roof and what it was coated in versus asphalt shingles, which of those was safer and cleaner, and just a lot of questions. From that, with what you said about that roof to faucet, could you use that as a model to walk us through this design process so that someone can take that water falling from the sky and then have it at the other end as high-quality drinking water? Yeah, absolutely. And I, we actually created an infographic you can follow along with if after you're done the show, you want to download this as a, as a listener. It's a really useful graphic. It's in the book as well, but we actually have an infographic about it. It's called The Anatomy of a Rain Tank. And it takes you right from the, the roof all the way down to, to the faucet in the, in the house, essentially. And there are roughly 20, 28 components in a anatomy of a rain tank. And I'll try and kind of rifle them off pretty quickly here. And if there are specific ones that you want to go into a little bit more detail, Scott, we can kind of dive into those. But obviously there's the roof. That's a really important component. And if in fact you are trying to create high quality drinking water, that's that's going to be healthy for you. The roof is is a very important component because smooth surfaces collect a lot less dust and debris than surfaces that have a lot of edge or roughness. And so generally, we, we want to see people using metal roofs, the recyclable, so it's a more ecological choice as well, because they're going to collect better rainwater and they're going to collect less of the dust and debris that you don't necessarily want in your tank. There's the rain gutters. They have to be positive draining. Typically, they're made out of a, a metal as well. Um, we try and stay away from materials like wood or bamboo. The downspouts, which carry the water from the roof down to the tank. In our cold climate, because we live in Calgary, we get to minus 40 here occasionally, the diversion valve is really important. So this thing basically allows us to send the water either to our food forest or to our garden or into a rain tank. So if we're, we're harvesting water above grade, we want to have the ability to winterize our systems. Turns out that the most important pre-filtration device on a rainwater harvesting system is actually the rain head. The first flush diverter, in spite of you know a lot of people talking about them, actually can be more detrimental than beneficial. And so we, you can put them on, but uh, they can be a bit of a maintenance issue. And if you're not the type of person that does maintenance, you're going to want to stay away from those first flush diverters. But the rain head is absolutely essential because it 
takes out any of the large debris that collects in any of those collection surfaces and makes sure it stays out of the tank, but it also prevents bugs from getting into the tank, which is really important. The water then flows into the flow splitter at the bottom of the tank, so we call this a quiet inlet, and so this reduces any kind of turbulation going on inside of the tank. And that's really important because, as we'll talk about a little bit later, the biofilms and sludges actually act as a form of bioremediation for the water. And we can talk about some of those, how those actions work. We've got the tank, so it's important to have an appropriately sized tank. A lot of the tanks that I see permaculturists using are just way too small. We see a lot of people using these IBC tanks, which are 1,000 liters or 200 gallons. So you really want to make sure you have a properly sized tank, which we can also talk about in a bit. We've got the inlet port, which is where our system grabs the water and either goes to a pump or if it's got enough gravity, we'll distribute throughout our system. We've talked about the sludge layer and the biofilms, which we can dive into a bit later. And then we've got to make sure we have a proper overflow. And, you know, Brad Lancaster, I think, really nailed this on the head when he talked about the importance of making sure that our overflow is actually used as a resource. So those overflow pipes should when, we're, when the tank is overflowing, should be directed to something else on the property that's actually going to put that overflow to productive use. Other little kind of optional things, you can have level indicators. It's important to, to you know, have a man way to be able to inspect your tank from time to time, an air vent so that air can leave and come in and out of the tank as the water levels are moving up and down, isolation valves on the you know, primary uh, pipes going in and out so you can service the tank if need be. And then a really good foundation to make sure that your tank is not going to, to slough. So the water is very, very heavy, and it's important that we properly design the foundation underneath the tank so that it's not going to cause a liability down the road, flood basements, or take down a wall, or any of those sorts of things. So that's a really quick overview of, some of kind of some of the main components, so we can dive into more details if, if any of those things stood out for you. Well, and you hit on all the major ones that I wanted to talk about and have consideration and some others that I wasn't thinking about because those large components that usually stand out when we first begin looking at what would be involved in a rainwater harvesting system. Since we start off at the top, can you go ahead and give us some thoughts on what we should consider when looking at a roof? You had mentioned metal roofs. Are there any special concerns there when we're looking at them. I know that we have, you know, those old style galvanized panels that was on my grandmother's house when growing up. And then, you know, on the, the last roof that I put in was one of the new seamless metal roofs. But yeah, if you could take us in a walk through that and what we should look at. Yeah. So, I mean, in Australia, as an example, I know for a fact that their roofing manufacturers are now making metal roofs that are certified for potable use, which is really cool. And I think that will end up coming to North America eventually. So they're actually taking those considerations into the coatings that they're putting onto those roofs. The safest roof material, like I said, is basically smooth and metal. But ironically, uh, galvalume is one of the, you know, the best uh, roofing materials, which ends up giving you a silver roof. And that's essentially a combination of uh, zinc and aluminum. And it has no coatings on it per se, because it's just, it's just the metal roof itself. The way that the, the tank works, the, the biology in the tank, specifically the biofilms and the sludge layer, they actually act as bioremediation mechanisms. And so when we started trying to find the research for this, because we, we kind of had heard through the permaculture community in Australia that this was kind of a thing, but we could never really find any of the, the stuff to back it up. 
we actually stumbled upon an incredible man named Dr. Peter Coombs in Australia. And I'll leave you a link to his website at the end, which you can put into the show notes. And he's been working in the rainwater industry for, I think, over three decades and has facilitated and conducted a lot of the the most important research as, as it pertains to rainwater harvesting on the planet. And so while the roof material is important to be smooth, and it, ideally we try and find coatings that don't have heavy metals and, and, and any of that, those other toxins in them, we want to be cognizant of that. The thing to be keeping in mind is that the tank itself is an absolutely incredible mechanism to facilitate the cleaning of this water. You know, in Australia, and a lot of the studies that they've talked about, because in Australian roof systems, they use a lot of lead flashing. The, the heavy metals are a problem and are one of the first things that you want to remove from the system if you can, wherever possible, which is why it is important to a degree to make sure that the coatings that you're selecting on your roofs are as clean as they possibly can be. And one of the reasons why, like I said earlier, the Galvalume roof, which has no coatings on it, is a, is a good option. And so what Peter Coombs, actually, there's a research report, which, again, I'll leave you another link to in the show notes by a, a gentleman named, uh, his last name Spinks. And he wrote his thesis on the bioremediation impacts of biofilms and sludges within rainwater harvesting systems. And they studied the concentration of heavy metals, VOCs, even microorganisms that were accumulating on the edges of these tanks and also in the sludge layer. And one of the findings that they found, they would compare basically the accumulation, for example, of lead in the biofilms when uh, in comparison to the center, center, center water column. And I say center, center because center in vertical elevation and center in horizontal elevation, thinking that that location of the tank would likely have the cleanest water or the the largest differentiation between the bottom and sides of the tanks. And they found concentrations of lead in the biofilms as high as 10,000 times higher on, in the biofilm than when compared to the center column of the water, and up to 300,000 times greater in the sludge layers, which is the layer that forms on the bottom of the tank as a result of flocculation, when compared to the center water column, which to me just blew my mind. And it kind of affirmed an ancient observation that the Romans had made. The Romans always knew that storing water in tanks for long periods of time improved water quality. That was like a known heuristic for the Romans, but they didn't understand the mechanism because they didn't have microscopes back then. And so now we know that these biological entities that are forming on the edges, here's the principle of edge coming up again, of these systems are actually having dramatic impacts to the overall quality of the rainwater. And I'd like to get into that a bit more when we start talking about tanks to consider how we can foster that biofilm and allowing for the formation of a sludge layer. Before we get there, I do have two other questions about this system from the roof to our tank. Sure. Uh, actually, let's make that three. You say that a smooth roof surface works best and we've addressed metal. Is there any concern about asphalt shingles? And you also said not to use something like wood or bamboo. Could you take us through those last kinds of considerations regarding the roofing material? And then I'd like to ask you about what you meant by positive flow gutters. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about other roofing materials like asphalt or wood, the first thing that comes up for both of those materials is that they have fairly rough surfaces. And so they're going to collect a lot of debris over time. And that inevitably is just going to end up in our rainwater harvesting tank, which is which is not great. Asphalt shingles themselves, a lot of them can have antifungal properties kind of baked into the mix. There can be all sorts of nasty stuff that they put into those, those those shingles themselves. And so while you can potentially use them in your garden, you know, it's not the best surface to use for a drinking system. I would recommend that people kind of stay away from that. It's probably possible, but probably not advisable in the overall scheme of things. And like, this is one of the things I love about permaculture so much is that when we look at rainwater harvesting systems, they're tight feedback loops. And so when we take water from our roof and we put it into our garden, that water then becomes personal. And so we're more likely to make decisions about roofing materials that don't have antifungal properties because it's probably going to shoot ourselves in the foot. So just be cautious and look at the materials and, and look at the MSDS and think about from a patterns perspective, smooth and as toxin-free as you can find. The wood, on the other hand, harbors large amounts of, of additional microbes. Um, it's also rough, so it collects a lot of the kind of atmospheric dust and also can contribute to high tannin levels in the water, especially if we're talking about cedar. And so generally not great for high quality rainwater, you know, if, if you intend on using that rainwater down the road for, for drinking. So smooth and toxin free is kind of the, the principle there. And then what are positive flow gutters? Basically, any gutter that's put up properly is going to have positive flow, meaning that it's got it's got slope on it. But it sounds crazy to actually spend any bandwidth talking about this because it's kind of like common knowledge. However, people don't like looking at things that aren't square, right? And so often it happens that I'll, I'll look at, at properties and we look at their eaves troughs and they're not draining. They actually are swales more than they're ditches. And we actually want gutters that are ditches and not swales. One of the biggest findings that this Sphinx gentleman found out or uh, uncovered as a result of his research was that roofs that are smooth and have access to solar radiation actually become sterilized. So part of the treatment train in a rainwater harvesting system is a roof that has good access to sun. So it can dry out between rains and the sun will actually sterilize the roof surface. The same holds true for our rain gutters. And so rain gutters that drain and that are not covered with leaf diverters right on top of the uh, the gutter surface, which creates problems with both sterilization, but it also can create rot in your roof surface itself. One of my um, exterior specialists that I work with in my consulting practice says that those leaf diverters that sit in our gutters actually just moves the liability three inches up, which essentially will start to rot out the, the sheathing in the roof if you're not cleaning those off. So we want our gutters to have positive drainage so that at the end of a rain event, the water drains out of them and that the sun can get access to it and cause that same sterility as a result of UV light. What can happen in gutters when you don't allow for that positive drainage is that that debris can, can pick up inside of there and that water that sits on top of an aluminum or even galvalume gutter can actually start creating galvanic action. And so what that means is that a small electrical cell basically is created there, which amounts to corrosion, which will actually slowly drill holes essentially through your gutter, but it will also end up putting the metals that get corroded 
off of that gutter into your rainwater tank, which will probably get picked up in the biofilms, but why not just prevent that in the first place by getting your gutters designed and installed properly? And one other thing you mentioned was the rain head as the water moves through our system and into the tank. What is that? So a rain head is basically, if you imagine a, a cubic shape with a 45-degree cutoff of one aspect of the cube and a screen placed on that 45-degree uh, angle, which basically takes all of the, the rainwater from the downspout and segregates any debris that's falling with the rain from entering into the tank. It also prevents any mosquitoes or other bugs from getting into the tank itself. It's a super low-tech, inexpensive primary filter mechanism that uh, it basically achieves all of those functions of, of eliminating rats, mice, bugs, and then debris that is larger than the actual screening material itself. The screen is typically made out of stainless steel, and a lot of the rain heads that come from Australia are made out of PVC, but I have seen them made out of metal as well, which would probably be a better material. So that rain head then functions as kind of your first macro filter of the water before it hits your tank. Absolutely. Yeah. And generally speaking, the 45 degree angle in which it is constructed allows for a somewhat self-cleaning mechanism. So as the debris builds up on the 45 degree screen, it reduces the flow moving through it. And some of that additional resistance actually helps to push the dirt off of the screen. So it's mostly self-cleaning. One less component of your system that you really have to worry about once it's in place, you can just check it and move on. Right. Yeah. Maybe once a year, you kind of just take once or twice a year, you take a look at it and just make sure everything's kosher with it. And then that leads us to what is probably the biggest component of the system other than our roof, which is the tank. If we want to build an appropriately sized tank that is capable of holding a healthy biofilm and allowing for a good sludge buildup for those contaminants to filter out of our high quality drinking water, what do we need to consider when it comes to materials and sizing? So that's a great question. And as an engineer, being somebody that's very concerned about quantification all the time, this is a, a problem or a liability that we dealt with for a really long time. And especially because we're from a cold climate, when we want to harvest rainwater and have access to it 12 months of the year, we have to go below grade. So we have to go below the frost line, which means now we're dealing with a whole different class of tanks because they have to be able to take the overburden of the soil on top of it. And not to say that all tanks are going to go below grade, but the reason this is important in terms of sizing a tank is that the literature or the tools that are available for tank sizing are abysmal, to be totally honest with you. And so given that we are nerds and we use, you know, Microsoft Excel and, and we develop processes to solve problems like this and to optimize problems like this, because the tank is the most expensive component in the system, it made sense that we provide people with our process to size an appropriate tank. Because if you think about it from an engineering problem perspective, the tank size is actually a minimization problem, not a maximization problem. So we're trying to get the smallest tank feasible to meet our primary objectives. And that takes a little bit of thinking in order to do it, because when we think about tank sizing, we're dealing with a resource like rain that is highly variable. I mean, it's over long periods of time, it's, it, it kind of 
works itself out in the wash and we have some averages that we can work with. But last summer, for example, we get about 12 to 15 inches of rain or between you know 300 and 320 millimeters of rain up here in Canada. And we had 20 millimeters or about an inch out of the 12. And so managing the variation in rainwater supply is challenging because you've got this variable input that's coming into your system and you've got this fairly consistent output. And so there's really only a couple of variables that you can manage. You can either increase the size of your roof or you can increase the size of your tank. And so what we did was we tried to make a user-friendly process that the average person can follow in order to get an appropriate tank size. Now that ties nicely into to biofilms and sludge layers because it's important that our tanks are large enough for volumetric purposes, but also when we get to these, these larger tank sizes, it allows for less movement of water inside of the tank, which actually helped to facilitate flocculation and also the formation of biofilms. Small tanks that have lots of movement in them are not necessarily gonna have the residence time that large tanks will. And so you will find biofilms and sludge layers forming in all rain tanks, but generally speaking, we tend to want to go with kind of larger rain tanks that are kind of built for purpose, if you will. And so these are, are mostly almost everywhere in North America. I've seen rainwater harvesting tanks, you know, either at ag stores or um, even plastic manufacturers, and they'll have kind of potable rated rainwater harvesting tanks that you can use for this purpose. Ironically, the color of the tank isn't really all that important. The research doesn't actually support, you know, the requirement to have opaque tank surfaces, but you might choose to do that for, you know, to help with UV protection of the plastic itself and maybe even aesthetics. So generally, we want larger tanks that allow for less movement inside of the tank that kind of fit the overall kind of site objectives as a general rule of thumb. And that's whether or not we would like to store enough water to be able to irrigate our entire garden if we're looking for potable water for emergency situations or any kind of combination in between of what our overall articulated needs are within our system. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, a good design starts with that goal articulation. And like you said, it can be a complete supply. It can be partial supply. And, uh, and anything in between. And, and then also the end uses are really important as well, because that'll dictate kind of how much emphasis you're going to put on some of the kind of smaller detailed components in there as well. And, and I think that it's important, and this is why I love permaculture so much, is to recognize that the rain tank is one component in an overall water harvesting plan. And so you don't necessarily always have to store water in a tank, store it in the ground, you can store it in, in carbaceous materials, you can be more water resilient by properly designing your property. It needs to be a holistic approach, and the rainwater tank is just one component in that overall overall system. And that takes us back to what you were saying earlier about a 30,000-foot view, is that if we begin there and look at all the places that we're going to be using water in our landscape, we can be designing out the different components and tools and techniques that we want to use along the way so that we wind up having an integrated approach to all of this so that even if we're not getting rain, we still have some water perhaps just in our house stored for our personal use, as well as being able to use techniques like swales or hugel culture or xi in order to capture the water based on what our local conditions are from the soil to our plants. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's where 
having perennial systems that really function on a like a decade-based water cycle, annual systems which are more of an annual-based water cycle, or maybe two or three-year, like depending on where you live, of course, and what the water cycle looks like in your soil. Having a well or having access to municipal water that uh, helps to level out those peaks and valleys. I think where we get foolhardy is when we say, well, all my water is going to come from the the water grid or all my water is going to come from the well or all my water is going to come from the local irrigation ditch. And, you know, NASA has this great saying, one is zero and two is one. And for a resource, like in permaculture, we have this, this saying, water access structures. So first we design all of our water systems that delineates out where our access goes, and then from there we can delineate where our structures go because every element in the permaculture landscape either wants water or doesn't want water, and every aspect is either hydrating or dehydrating. And so with those tidbits of information, we can create a resilient water plan and make sure that everything's located relative to its water needs, regardless of whether we have rainwater one year or not. We should have two or three different mechanisms to provide that rainwater probably even four, like we look at groundwater, we look at rainwater tanks, we look at municipal or well water, and you know maybe we even look at condensation. I mean, there's multiple ways that we can bring water onto our property. Up here in, in Canada, a quarter of our, at least in my ecosystem, a quarter of our precipitation comes in the form of snow. And people don't think of snow as precipitation, but the minute I put up a food forest or a shelter belt or a snow fence, snow fences are great temporary structures, I can literally double or triple the water that I get on my property with something as inexpensive as a snow fence if I've got the landscape elements right behind it to be able to leverage that. Like where else in the world can you harvest this flying dust that happens to be white and literally double your precipitation in less than six months. Like, it's just unbelievable to think about snow that way. And those numbers are really fascinating to me because living here on the East Coast of the United States, we average between 45 and 50 inches of rain or rainfall equivalent a year. And when we talk about water tanks and water storage, I know it's very popular through our extension office or gardening clubs for people to come together and build a 50-gallon rain barrel. And... I thought that was really cool in the beginning because it's this nice hands-on project to get people involved and to think about harvesting water. But once I went back to my home and started doing the research into how much water runs off my roof in a single one-inch rain event, and it works out that it's around 800 gallons, so I would need 16 of those 50-gallon barrels in order to capture just a single inch of rain. And, you know, we do that math out that if I want to capture all the rain or rainfall equivalent that hits that roof, it's hundreds of these barrels across my yard. And the way that that then scales up when we're looking at cisterns and other tanks and getting a feel for just how much water actually lands on a property in a single storm and how much of a resource we have to utilize wherever we are in the world, whether or not we're in an area that is a desert that only gets perhaps a few inches of rain throughout the year or in places like where I am where it's readily available. There's lots that we can do to make use of that in our landscapes as permaculture designers. You bring up a really great point. I mean, those blue 50-gallon drums are really just a gateway drug into rainwater harvesting. And uh, once you put one of those things down there and you feel all proud for plumbing it in and it looks beautiful and there's a little hose bib on the outside and you're going to go water your trees and plants with it, the first two insights you have is, holy crap, 50 gallons is not very much water and my, my trees and my plants need, like, use that really, really quickly. 
And the second thing is, oh my gosh, this thing filled up in the first 30 seconds of the rain event. It's not even close to big enough. So let's just talk about some scale issues there. In Calgary here, and we're all in liters here, so there's four liters to the gallon, and I could try and give both sets of units for folks. But the average Calgarian in my city uses around 400 liters of water a day, which is roughly 100 gallons per person per day. If you net that out over 365 days in a year, and there's four people in a house, just to kind of put a scale to that number, and I'll do it in gallons first, we're talking about 146,000 gallons of water per year, which works out to about 600,000 liters of water per year. And so when you start kind of understanding those numbers, and then you start comparing it to the roof surface area that you've got, the bridge between supply and demand with regards to rainwater is the tank. And so if we use a kind of a, a rough number of about 25 cents per liter for a rainwater harvesting tank at 600,000 liters, you know, we're talking about a $150,000 storage system. And of course, we're not going to spend 150 grand to meet the average North American household's water requirements. But when people start running these numbers, what they realize is that, first of all, they don't need 100 gallons of water a day. That's just ridiculous. And so there's all sorts of opportunities to cut water demand down. And it doesn't mean that we're going back to, you know, living like nomads or whatever. Like we still have very complex, sophisticated lives with way less water. But when you start to reduce the the demand and it kind of comes in line with the supply, then that optimized tank kind of emerges out of the middle. And again, this is that feedback mechanism that I think is so important to touch on. I don't think that, well, let me say this a different way. Everybody that's listening to this right now probably has thought about these, this statement or these words, but they've never put words to it. And it's, it's the disease of our time right now, which is that this meme or this, this story that humans are inherently destructive. Humans are not inherently destructive. We've just built human infrastructure that lacks feedback. And when we bring feedback back in, like, oh my gosh, the average Calgarian family uses 600,000 liters of water in a year, and that doesn't include irrigation. That somebody, most people are instantly going to go to, wow, I need to figure out how to use less. Or the minute you put a rainwater harvesting system into for somebody or a solar array in for somebody, and they have feedback to understand how much power they're consuming versus how much they're capturing, you never have to guilt somebody into changing their behaviors. You just have to show them the feedback and the behavioral patterns shift automatically. And it's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about permaculture is that it's such a positive approach, that it's not about shaming or degrading someone's view of the world, but showing them just a different way that can add even more beauty to their lives. And this is just another great way to do that and to influence amazing change with just a few tools and resources. Absolutely. I think Penny Livingston said it best when she said, we have to make it taste better and more fun and be more exciting. And I think that that really differentiates kind of the environmental movement from the permaculture movement, which is that Let's entice people into these systems because they're just a better way to live. It's not about, as you said, guilting or shaming people. You know, I often say one of the best gateway drugs into permaculture is the cob oven in my backyard and the pizzas that come out of it, especially when people see all the fresh stuff going on to these pizzas that come right out like three steps away from the garden. It's just unbelievable. Well, Rob, I love the work that you're doing. I think that your book essential rainwater harvesting that you wrote with your wife, Michelle, from New Society Publishers is a great resource for folks who are interested in doing this. Of course, we also have Brad Lancaster 
which I recommend people also check out his resources. I think that between the two, you've provided the overview and everything necessary for anyone who's interested in doing this kind of work on the ground and considering both their regional kind of zone four or zone five considerations, as well as that zone zero and zone one needs. Before we draw this to a close, I know that there's so much more that we could cover, and I always regret that these interviews are only so long, but is there anything that you'd like to share to wrap up this conversation today? Yeah, there's a couple of points that I think we could just quickly touch on. In North America now, there's a joint NSF-CSA code that exists between both countries, Canada and the United States, and it's actually a very progressive code, and we will watch it be adopted right across the U.S. and Canada, likely over the next five years. Water is the issue of the future. With no water, we have no food, we have no energy, we have nothing. Water is absolutely central to life. You cannot overemphasize this. And so I think there's one of the permaculture maxims, the problem is always the solution. For folks that want to make a right livelihood, this is an industry I highly recommend you consider because Every time you build a house or retrofit a house, every house basically has all the components in it to create a sustainable human habitat. And because water is central to that, that theme, to that vision, rainwater harvesting is likely going to be one of the largest industries in the coming decades in North America as we look to how to bring our footprint back to one that's being just as positive as we are negative. And, and that kind of is a, is a nice closing theme. Like, we're, we're doing a really good job as humans at documenting all the, like how negative we're being, and that's usually where the conversation stops. But if the most negative thing on the planet is the nuclear bomb, then the question that we should be asking ourselves is, what's the most positive? And when you're going down the river on a canoe, you don't focus on the rocks. You need to know where the rocks are, but you've got to focus on the components of the river that allow you to get around the rocks without destroying your boat. And so I think it's just as important for us to document how we can be positive so that we're talking less about how large our footprint actually is and more about how that large footprint is actually making the world a better place for us and all of the other non-human inhabitants as well. And rainwater is one of the keystone design pieces that you need to get right on your property right from the beginning in order to drive all of those other ecosystem services that we need as humans to coexist on this planet. And that was Rob Avis. You can find more about his work at vergepermaculture.ca and the book Essential Rainwater Harvesting at newsociety.com. You'll find links to those and other resources, including his rainwater harvesting toolkit, in the show notes. In the book Essential Rainwater Harvesting, Rob and Michelle break down what we need to install a rainwater harvesting system, and they back that up with their professional experience and the sources that led them to their conclusions. They also hold the additional need to understand the liability and risks of such a system as engineers who put their stamp on a design. I mentioned this latter part as one of my earliest lessons in rainwater capture was just how heavy a rain barrel can get. Even a 50-gallon barrel can weigh over 400 pounds, or 180 kilos. And with that in mind, we need to consider where we're going to place them, whether or not we have a good solid foundation in that space, and by doing so, make sure that they can be a productive addition to our design and not create any hazards for us as the user or to our surrounding neighbors. One of the other parts of rainwater harvesting that was kind of mystified for me in the beginning 
was calculating just how much water can fall on a given area and the necessary size for a storage container to hold it all. Once you start doing those calculations, you quickly find that a lot of water, whether you count the volume in liters or gallons, comes off of a roof with just a centimeter or half inch of rain. Accounting for that, how your surfaces or gutters divide and divert those flows and where they'll go, can help to understand how to use this resource around your home or in your landscape. With essential rainwater harvesting, you'll find all the details for that and much more. Which is my long way of saying, I like this book and the others in the Essential series from New Society Publishers, and think you will too. After listening to this conversation, do you have questions for Rob? Would you like to hear more about this work or his other projects at Verge Permaculture? Get in touch. Visit thepermaculturepodcast.com and click on contact to send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Until the next time, spend each day making smart use of your resources while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. The Permaculture Podcast is a production of Permaneo Group. Find out more about the Permaculture Podcast, including the extensive archives, by visiting our website, thepermaculturepodcast.com. Learn more about Permaneo Group and other projects at permaneogroup.com.